This is your coffee break. Hey friends, Sarah here. I am back again this week bringing you wonderful writers such as Caitlin Stats, who we have here on the phone slash computer, I guess right now. Um, she is all lined up with her microphone and is laughing because we did not plan any of this. So welcome to the show, Caitlin. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And as I said earlier, during our little mishap, it wouldn't be podcasting without something kind of not working out right, but then getting through it. So we're still on good track. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. In case all of you are not familiar, which you may or may not be, Kaylin is one of the two members of Fool and Scholar Productions. And I think the standard question is to ask if you are the Fool or the Scholar. I am the Scholar. <laughs> yes. It's a nice thing to be able to claim. Uh, well, it's not insulting to the fool. Uh, it's just that when, I don't know if people know this, but there's a game called Werewolf and there's a card in the deck that's called the fool, or it's actually called the town idiot sometimes as well. And when I first met him, uh, he had chosen the fool card out of the deck of Werewolf. Uh, so I've called him the fool and, uh, I was a frost scholar when I went to university. So it was the fool and scholar. Fool and scholar. So it's not insulting to call him the fool. <laughs> and, and the two of you um, are not just casual acquaintances. Uh, no, it started out that way a long time ago, but we're married now. <laughs> congrats, congrats. And uh, we get to create wonderful stories together. So it's, uh, it's a good way to create and a good way to be a married couple and have some uh, goals, which yes. is always nice. <laughs> yes. Oh, wonderful. Um, so tell me a little bit about what you create. I know a little bit, and I think the audio drama community, anyone listening, uh, will know you very well. But for everyone else out there, tell us a little bit about what it is uh, you guys do and create together. So we at Fool and Scholar Productions create the, uh, the White Vault, which is a horror audio drama podcast. And we also create Liberty, which is a sci-fi adventure audio drama podcast. We also have more shows coming out in the future, but currently our big shows are Liberty and The White Vault. And uh, yeah, The White Vault just came out in October of last year, which seems both forever ago and not that long ago. <laughs> uh, but it came to be our best show yet. And we had such a great re reaction from the audio drama community and from the horror community. And we look forward to creating more. Yeah. That's so exciting. And I love The White Vault. I'll make sure that there is a link to it in the show notes for today's episode so people can check it out. It's uh, only if you like horror. Yes, yes, it is. It is horror. <laughs> and that's kind of that's one of the things that I want to ask you about. First, I want to ask how you got into writing, because we were chatting a little bit before we started recording. And you mentioned that, you know, you don't have a degree in writing. You didn't go to school for writing. How did you end up in writing? So when I was in college, so not, not university, but college, so getting my first degree, I wanted to do all these different things that I couldn't do. I thought I wanted to be a full-on artist, but my college would not let me take any art classes whatsoever unless I chose that as my major, and I was never going to tell my parents I'm taking art as my major. <laughs> oh my gosh. So yeah, they wouldn't let me take a single art class. Um, instead, I did anthropology and archaeology, which honestly I love, and I enjoyed reading the stories about all of these different cultures and these peoples and their history and what made them do what they do and the kind of myths that they grew up on and things like that. And eventually I got down the line. I was like, okay, I'm not going to do art at this point because they won't let me take any classes. 
And then I got into university and I was like, I can only go to university if I take this one path because it's full scholarship. Otherwise I have to pay for everything myself and everybody knows I can't really afford that nowadays. Mm -mm. And it was, um, it was a master's in archeological sciences. So it was full on science and I didn't yet again get to do any arts. I didn't get to do anything creative. And I got to the point when I was doing my degree that I knew I wanted to create something. And I was, I was kind of sick to the point where I was like, I, I have to create something. I want to get some of my ideas out there. I can't just keep learning how to use a mass spectrometer and doing all this other stuff that I can do, but it's not creative. It doesn't have that outlet. And I'm sure a lot of people would understand if you love writing or love creating, you need that outlet. So Travis and I were living in England and we decided, you know what? We already have this wonderful world for liberty. How can we tell other stories in this world? How can we reach a great audience with this world? And we decided, why can't we write an audio drama? And it was kind of that first start towards oh, I can write something and people want to listen to it. I'm not going to say it was good. The first season of Liberty was not really good. (laughs) But it gave me the confidence to decide, okay, I can keep doing this and I can better myself. So it's been several years down the line now, and I've never thought I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm a writer now. But I'm a writer now, and I didn't go to school for it. But I just practice, and I do it. And I write every day, and I try to create something that I know even if I don't like how it is now, maybe if I go back to it in six months, I can change it because you don't know how long it's going to be before you grow as a writer. It could be two days. It could be two years. So it was a process for me to find out you don't have to go to school for writing because I always thought you go to school for pharmacy tech and then you become a pharmacy tech and then you are a pharmacy tech for the rest of your life. And that's not the way it has to be. Um, So I'm not an archaeologist. (laughs) So not, not, no, not an archaeologist. <laughs> I love that though. There's, there, there's so much in here I want to like sort of unravel and explore. And, you know, a lot of people see classes and degrees as sort of permission to pursue something. And my question is twofold. It's how did you finally realize that it was okay to write, even though you didn't have a degree in writing? And then um, how did you start going down that path? For, for the first one, or actually, let's start with the second one. How, okay. how did I decide, like, what was my way of building myself as a writer? Yes. Um, I had always been writing papers, but they were very scientific. But I love, and I still love, I love doing research. Um, I, I just adore it for some reason. I'm like, oh, I found these peer-reviewed articles on this, and I feel like I can really incorporate all this information. I just learned. I love research. So... When I got to writing, I started putting together these interesting yet accurate stories. And I decided, well, I already know how to write a paper. And I wrote my thesis and I wrote my everything I've ever written. I've written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. It just happened to be very boring and nobody wants to read it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then I decided, okay, I'm going to start writing. And like I said, first season, not so great. Second season, I was actually listening to your podcast. Um, yes, <laughs> I, <was. laughs> I forgot about that. I forgot Absolutely, about that. I was listening. Um, <laughs> and I used to specifically, I would listen when I went to the gym. Cause I was, I was like, Oh, when will I have time to listen? And I was like, I'm going to listen when I'm at the gym. Cause I just, otherwise I'm listening to music and I, uh, either way works for me. Anyways, 
<laughs> and you you showed me that, okay, yeah, I can find the time to do it. Because even if I am studying for my finals, or even if I am writing these papers or anything, I have more time to put towards creating, because I knew I needed to create something. And then I was reading every book I could get my hands on. I loved, of course, like the traditional, like Stephen King's on writing. I tore through that. I had my little notebook next to me and I was like writing down all the notes I can because I got everything from the library. Um, and then I would return them when I was done. And I'd have that little sinking feeling you get when you return a book you've read completely to the library. Like I'm done with you and I have to release you back into the wild. Yes, <laughs> back into the wild. Yes. Oh my gosh. And I was reading these books. I was listening to podcasts. I was watching um, YouTube seminars. So a lot of writers will give seminars at colleges um, and they have the videos uploaded to YouTube. Even if the writers don't know who are giving the seminars, the university usually uploads it. So I'm watching these YouTube seminars and I'm taking notes. I'm looking at scripts for television shows and mm. scripts for audio dramas. And I'm looking at how it is that they've structured things does not mean that my scripts are structured right at all. You've seen some of my scripts. They have the wrong structure entirely. Mine too. Mine do too. Also self-taught. Yep. But my, my actors never complain. They <laughs> just enjoy the stories and they go with it. But I just started piecing together what I guess was my own course. I was like, okay, well, who's my teacher today? My teacher today is Sarah. Who's my teacher tomorrow? My teacher tomorrow is Stephen King. Who's my teacher the next day? <laughs> So I'm putting together all of these people who either inspire me to continue creating or give me a better path on how to create. Um, and for me, that was kind of my ticket to say like, oh, okay, I've put in the time to learn how to write. So now I can write. And for me, that, that really worked. Um, you don't have to have a certificate that says it. You just have to keep trying and mm -hmm. tell yourself that you can do it. And for me, it was also... Um, Travis, the other part of Fool of Scholar Productions, when he said, you know, this is actually pretty good. I was like, oh, really? <laughs> so getting the encouragement from the person I'm closest to and then telling me, yes, you can do this was a huge, just like green light mm -hmm. in my head. So, and I'm sure other people feel that way as well when they're so scared to show their little script or the little manuscript to someone and then they show it to them and they don't get like immediately rejected. That's a good feeling. <laughs> it is a good feeling. That fear, though, that keeps a lot of people from showing it to anyone in the first place, though. I guess, what gave you the courage to share that? When I started writing the very first thing, which was critical research, um, Travis and I were kind of writing it together. And then we found out Travis is not a very good writer. Oh. So, I mean, I love him. And he'll, he'll, he knows that I'm saying this. So he'll, <laughs> he'll be fine with it. We've had this discussion before. <laughs> And we were trying to write it together because he, he had created the Liberty world and I was trying to tell a story in it. And it got to the point where he was like, okay, you know what? You're, you're better at this than me. I'm going to give this over to you to write and I'll just see what you do with it. And that was both frightening because I kept asking him about his world because he had created this sci-fi world. And then I found out about halfway through writing season one that I had created about half of the world with him at this point. So I didn't need to keep asking so much as I just had to be reminded of certain things. So my first step forward was with somebody. So that wasn't as scary as it would be if I had started by myself, which might not be a situation other people can put themselves in. But if it is something that you're considering, even just starting something and saying, hey, I have an outline for an idea. 
could you just look at my outline first? Because even that would kind of break down that barrier for some mm -hmm. people. Like, oh, you don't have to read my first 50 pages. Just read my first five-page outline and tell me if you think the story is okay. Like the basic bones. And once you get that little bit of approval, it kind of just drives you forward. I love that idea. So make sure, I think it's also important that your first reader or your first critic that you entrust with your work is someone who knows you and is compassionate and knows how to give constructive and not destructive criticism. And it can be very, it can be very empowering for somebody who you know very well and who knows you to say like, yes, this is worthwhile. Keep going. I'm really glad that you had Travis to do that. Well, the editor I use now is my best friend. Um, she's been reading my papers since high school. And she's much happier now that she's not reading like my thesis <laughs> and all of the boring stuff. She's like, oh, at least now there's characters. Um, <laughs> but she's she's destructive in a good way. Mm -hmm. Like I've, I've been used to her pulling apart my papers for like 10 years now. <laughs> she's just like, this makes no sense. Big red lines through it. And I'm like, I love you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for helping, <laughs> but also hurting. Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes it's nice to have that balance too. It's nice to have on the one hand, somebody who's very encouraging and somebody who says, you know what? this is great, you know, maybe tweak this here. And then sometimes it is kind of nice to have like the shredder, the person yeah. who goes through with the red pen and, and says no to you. That's something I learned a little bit later in adulthood for me was that it feels good to surround yourself with people who say yes, but you can only really grow if you have people around you who are willing to say, you know what, Sarah, I love you. Uh, this doesn't work. 100% agree. <laughs> I think that having someone who's willing to say that something you've written makes no sense or, oh, this was supposed to be your big reveal, but it's not actually very frightening. Something like that, especially for me as a horror writer, because I need to run it by someone who's going to say, yo, that's not scary. Um, and <laughs> my, my friend will definitely say that to me straight to my face or at least over Skype because she lives very far away from me now. <laughs> but having those, the, the yes man and the no at the same time, I mean, you just need to have the encouragement to go forward, but also the willingness to say, if I don't get better, no one's going to keep listening or mm -hmm. reading. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say listening, though, because everybody listens to what I create. <laughs> no, I love that. I know that none of you listening can see her right now, but Caitlin is this like, she looks like a sweet little fairy pixie princess. Like she's adorable and tiny <laughs> and beautiful. And you look at her and you don't exactly think like, oh, this is a master of the macabre. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with the horror genre. I grew up just enjoying horror because it really pushes your limits of what makes you comfortable. And I get this feeling when I'm writing horror as to how it is that I can convey to someone that horror is really about finding out what you're scared of. Like you might think, oh, I'm, I'm scared of spiders. So of course the story about spiders is going to scare me. But maybe what you're actually scared of is getting stuck in something or not being able to move or feeling confined. And you fear not only the spider, but the, the idea of a spider's web mm. and things like that. So when I started writing horror, it was actually back when we did um, the first season of Liberty Tales from the Tower. So Liberty is the sci-fi adventure podcast. Critical Research was the first season we wrote. And then while we were waiting to write season two for that, we did a short sci-fi horror anthology season and 
that was the first time I had written anything for horror and I loved it. <laughs> it just like sunk its fangs in and it wouldn't let go. I was like, this is, I can tell these short, scary stories. They not only help build this world, but they help people feel like a visceral interaction with what it is that I've spent so much time creating. And it's not that I personally want to go out and be a scary person. I'm not particularly frightening, as you You're said. You're not I'm scary. No. Yeah. Short, tiny woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't like wear dark, scary clothing or anything. And I'm not trying to be scary as a person. I'm trying to be the kind of person who says, you know what? It's very interesting that you're scared of that thing. Can we find out why? Or can we actually build on your fear in some way? And I did that a lot with Tales from the Tower. Every episode was a different scary story that poked at a different part of what makes people scared. So some of them might not be scary to some people, but they might be terrifying to others. And that's what I love because fear is so different between each person. It's so fascinating. And I've talked with other horror writers on this show before and everyone, you know, if you're, if you're a, a fiction writer, you know, you love literary fiction, but if you're a horror writer, you are like really into horror. Some genres go deeper than others. I feel like horror is a very deep genre and it has a lot of, I don't know, deeply personal connections with a lot of people. A lot of people connect to horror in the way that they don't to other, to other genres. And, and I like what you said about it's, you said we have a visceral interaction with it. And I love that phrase. And it's so true. <laughs> Anything that I read that like makes my stomach clenched, that gets my heart pounding, that gets my like, get, gets my like body involved. It's a, it's a really cool experience. So for you, do you have like a favorite like type of horror to write? You talked a little bit about exploring fears in short fiction, but do you prefer a more psychological or a more like chainsaw massacre kind of thing? Or tell me a little bit more about that. I, I enjoy writing more psychological um, and I strictly try to avoid gore horror because for me, that's never been very frightening. I, I've never been one to be squeamish at things. I used to volunteer at hospitals and I would help like clean the equipment after surgeries. So I was like, oh, the blood doesn't bother me. The bits and pieces don't really bother me. And for me, it's more about the breaking of someone's mind or their safety net or things mm -hmm. like that. So I've really enjoyed, uh, actually, this is going to sound really very silly, but I have a lot of versions of the old grim fairy tales that I love. That's not and silly. I used to go back and I, I read some of them in the old German, and then I read some of them in two or three different types of the English translations. And then you also compare those to things like the Anderson fairy tales or other tales from around the world, and you just see these common themes of this is what people are scared of, this is how people train their children with scary stories from around the world because some things are very universal don't go into the woods at night um don't go and see that weird person who lives down the lane because everyone in the town has told you not to there's very simple things that everybody knows and then there's things that are very individual to like one person or another person some people are very claustrophobic other people fear wide open spaces like being in space or things like that. So it's just one person or another and everything will be hit or miss. So it's a little bit, a lot of these stories, it sounds like stem from sort of behavioral modification in children. So like we tell scary stories to like keep them safe. You know, if you go into the woods at night, you're going to get eaten by a bear or a wolf. So don't go in the woods at night. And here's a scary story to make sure you don't do that, which is fascinating. 
uh, <laughs> even in its own way that people can use and manipulate horror like that uh, in the ones that they love and in their own children, which... Well, I always thought it was funny that people said, oh, this is a, uh, a folk tale. And I was like, well, if you really break it down, it's just a, a very childish version of a horror story. I mean, you have Hansel and Gretel going into a forest and they're actually being shunned out by their family, which by itself is horrific. Yes. And then you have somebody in the, they have their own passage through the forest, which is itself horrific. And then finding the witch at the end, which is again, horrific. So all of these little things that build up and we're like, oh, it's just a children's tale. And I was like, do you understand? Every children's tale has something in it that's supposed to teach a child. And we've been doing this for generations and in many different cultures. And that's how I continue to use my anthropology degree. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, so we, we talk about, you know, using horror through fairy tales. And, and, you know, I was even thinking of Cinderella, you know, essentially like abandoned by her dad and like thrown into the unloving care where she is not listened or respected. Like even that's horrifying. And that's like a fairy tale. Like that's not even like a warning tale. That's like a, hey, your dreams can come true kind of tale. It just kind of makes me wonder, you know, now that you're telling these tales for adults, is there any sort of like lesson that you embed in there? Or are these just like purely for, for fun and nightmares? <laughs> um, sometimes I do want to put a lesson in. Uh, I can't really say what some of those lessons are. So for the white vaults, there is uh, not really, I wouldn't say it's a lesson, but there is a general idea that you'll get after all of the seasons are completed. <laughs> but for some of them, yes. That's if I go and I talk about uh, Tales from the Tower, some of the episodes, because it actually takes place in a totalitarian government state in the sci-fi world that we've created, it fits the idea of what kind of tale this government would be telling children and mm. telling people. Oh, well, why, why should we fear these people beyond the wall? Oh, here's a horror story concocted by this government telling you why you should fear the people beyond the wall which is kind of their version of a grim fairy tale. And some of them, yes, they have those themes that even we as people here on Earth could understand. But then sometimes I try to mold them and make them fit more of the sci-fi world itself. And I think that the answer is both yes and no. Sometimes I put a lot of thought into them. Sometimes it's just, I have a really good idea for a scary story. Good. I feel like <laughs> that's a healthy mix. Put it together. Yeah. I love it. You and Travis, uh, you sort of co-built this world together. I know that world building is something that is really intimidating for a lot of new writers. And I know that you kind of were able to ease into it because Travis was also sort of the one who started it. But um, did you learn any lessons along the way about what it really means to do good world building? I do want to clarify that Travis had been working on Liberty for many years before I started working with him um, because he put a lot of work into it, but he was creating it for a comic book and we still have the comic book. The comic book is still ongoing, but he had put so much time into creating this world. But when I started looking at it um, from the, the scholar side of Fool and Scholar, I noticed there were a lot of holes. Um, there wasn't a lot of science behind his science fiction. So he had this really great basic framework for this really closed off science fiction society, but it really needed a lot of fleshing out. And I was very happy to step in and help him flesh it out and really help build what could be a great world. And together we were able to make it the Liberty world that we see now, and it's still growing. 
world building never stops. Uh, you never get to the point where it's like, oh, I'm done building my world. Just wait until somebody asks you a question. And then you'll be like, and now I have to go build my world some more. <laughs> as far as world building goes, though, don't be afraid to throw out really bad ideas. It's really easy to come up with five ideas and then only end up keeping one of them or none of them because you'll be like, oh, this works as long as this works and this works and this works and then none of those works. So never mind. I have started back at scratch or back with nothing. So I would say the, the best thing that you can do when you're building a world is don't be afraid to throw everything out and think about individual people and individual mm -hmm. lives because that's what we thought about when we were building the Liberty world. How does somebody in the fringe world live? How does somebody who works for the government in the inner city live? What's their day-to-day -day life like? Mm -hmm. And why is it like that? Because the way that everybody lives is based off of the culture that they're a part of. So you'll start thinking about how, why, why somebody goes to the train every day at 534 and what it is they do on their way, what they're hearing on their way and who they talk to. Everything that you do is dictated by your culture. So it's nature versus nurture. And I'm very much a nurture sort of person. <laughs> I love this. And I I feel like you're really the first person I've talked to who has talked about world building in a very intimate sense, in a very person by person sense. Uh, you know, you, you read all sorts of things like, oh, if you're building your world, um, you know, you'll want to start with like your pantheon and you'll want to start with like a huge map of the entire world. And you'll want to start with, you know, the three cities that your characters will visit the most and it, no, I love that. The idea of like, who are these citizens? Who are these people? It really has to do with, okay, if, if, if I'm talking about somebody from the inner city, again, I'm talking about Atreus. I'm so sorry to those people who have no idea what I'm talking <laughs> about. Um, if I'm talking about somebody who lives in this government state, they're not going to have a pantheon because, okay, why, why is it that they listen to the government propaganda every day? Oh, because the government is the only thing around and there is no reason to listen to preachers because there is no God in their world. But then if you're a fringer, then you have different groups of people and they all have different pantheons. So every individual is going to be a different way. And I play a lot of D&D. &D. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry, I do. I play a lot of D&D. &D. Me too. So does, yeah, so does <laughs> my husband, Travis. We play a lot of D&D. &D. Um, we actually have a, a book now where people can play Liberty After, which is D&D &D in our world that we've created because we've put so much time into it. So I approach it from the standpoint of I'm going into a D&D &D game and I'm creating my character and then I'm looking at my character and going, okay, great. She's a half-orc paladin, which is actually one of my characters currently, and she follows a god, a god of justice or something. So... I need a god of justice to exist. Let's go find out what I'm going to create based off of this. Or, oh, she's a she does farming on her, on her day off, but certain things don't grow in her area. So why don't they grow? Because it's too cold. Great. I've just created an area like that. And that's the other side of my life because I also create maps. Mm. <laughs> so altogether, I think world building is going to be something that uh, you approach pretty slowly. But at the same time, if you're building something that you love, just think about it as the individual people who make up your story and go from there. I never thought that it was too intimate. I thought it was always uh, just, I don't know, building a character. <laughs> no, but that's that's what's beautiful about it is it comes from it's characters out instead of world in. You know, it starts with different people's minds and hearts instead of like one overarching architect saying like, this is how it is. How can I fit everybody into it? So it's a cool approach. 
I think it is almost the opposite of how I actually write my stuff, though, because that's more of a, I guess, a pantser mentality than a plotter. <laughs> but for everything else, I plot everything else meticulously. But for world building, it's uh, it's a longer process. I guess it's just really slow plotting. It is. I think that I would like to wrap up by just saying, how do you balance all this? You are not only a person who is very, very driven and who has a lot of things going on, but you are also multi-passionate, multi-creative. We only alluded to it, but um, Caitlin also does maps for fantasy books. Um, She's a very talented artist and graphic designer, voice actor, writer. So like you're this multi-creative person. How do you how do you do all of this? It's really great to be part of Fool and Scholar's team. Unlike some people I know, I cannot both write and produce my show by myself. because She's, I am she's not looking tech. at me. Yes, I am. I'm looking at her. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do the writing for the podcast and I do the social media and the graphic design, but I don't do any of the production side. I'm not that technically savvy, uh, although I do voice act on a couple of things as well. And then, yeah, I do the, the fantasy map making, uh, fantasy cartography and illustrations and a bunch of other stuff. But um, during the section of time where I'm not taking on any commissions, I've spent so much time writing that I've started like two new stories and I have not stopped. I just know that I'm very self-driven. I think it comes from going straight from being in college to going to university to graduating and then feeling like the only person who can drive me is going to be me. So if I stop, then I'm not going to feel like I have any creative outlet or for me even like a personal work because I feel like what I create is what makes me an important person (laughs) this is a whole nother topic oh my gosh I want to have you back on so that we can talk about creativity and self-worth because it's something that so many of us struggle with (gasps) it really it really is and I don't mind talking about it because again I didn't think I was going to be a writer (laughs) until then um, where can people find you and your work online? Where can they go? What do they do? I, I know, and you have like a million different places. <laughs> okay. Um, so on Twitter, you can find me at Stats Inc. You can also find a lot of links to my works at statsinc.com. Uh, that's S-T-A-T-Z-I-N-K.com. We write or we produce The White Vault, which you can find <sighs> everywhere. All the places. <laughs> All the places. If you're listening to this podcast, you know how to find podcasts. So just look for The White Vault. Um, same for Liberty. You can find Liberty anywhere you can find major podcasts. It's also available on SoundCloud. And that's at Atreus Endures. That's A-T-R-I-U-S Endures on Twitter and on Facebook. And I think Instagram as well, but I don't remember right now. That might be Liberty Enders. It's kind of hard to remember. Well, I know. <laughs> I'll make sure that there are links to all of these and probably more in the show notes for today's episode. But oh my gosh, Caitlin, I just adore you so much. You are you are such a freaking treasure. So thank you for being so amazing. Thank you for having me. And uh, you guys don't know this, but Sarah and I have met in person. And she's an amazing person. And I look forward to seeing her again and working with her in the future. Yeah. Well, gosh, the same to you. Oh my gosh.